This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Denver's airport is about to get crazy busy for the holidays, and so we want an update on the train that goes there. The University of Colorado A-Line has had its share of problems, making passengers late or leaving them stranded. And malfunctioning crossing gates were such a problem that the feds were prepared to shut down both the A and B lines. But RTD has gotten a 90-day extension. Despite all that, ridership is increasing and trains are 87 percent on time, says RTD. Spokesman Nate Curry is with us, and so is Nadia Garis of Denver Transit Partners, which constructed and maintains the lines. And welcome to you both. Good morning. Thank you for having us. Good morning, Ryan. So, Nate, people may have seen the flaggers standing by at the crossings since the A and B lines opened, camped out there on chairs. Can you explain just in layman's terms what the crossing problem is? Yeah, so uh, there's a software issue that we have with this new positive train control uh, safety system that we have. And so it's just a matter of getting the timing of the gates correct. In the meantime, the federal government, uh, the Federal Railroad Administration, has, has asked us to have a triple layer of safety, and that's those crossing guards. Uh, they're just there to have a visual uh, a visual check to make sure that everything is going well uh, at, at the crossings themselves. Okay, and if they weren't there, what does the federal government fear would happen? Well, there's still two systems in place. So there's the old system the trains have been running on for decades, over a century now, actually. And then there's the new positive train control system that's working. Uh, it's just, again, the software system. So it, it's, it's just being extricate, uh, extra safe and careful. And, you know, we always want to on an air onto the side of safety. Positive train control, can you just say briefly what that is? Folks may have heard yeah, it in the wake of some of the, the recent de- derailings on the East Coast. Absolutely, yeah. So the old system is ATC. They think of it as an analog system. Uh, this is a new PTC. It's, it's a digital system, so it's Bluetooth or wireless, and the train is communicating with lots of different towers and, and gates as it continues on its path. All right. So an automated system, one that presumably is deemed safer by the federal government. Yeah, exactly. It's designed so that if the train is going too quickly and the operator for some reason doesn't respond, it'll shut the train down. Or if it's coming into a curve too quick, uh, if, there, if there are obstacles in the, in the crossing itself, it knows to go ahead and, and slow the train, if not stop it altogether, if the operator for some reason is not responding. Okay. So that's what is at the heart of those crossing issues on both the A and B lines. Nadia, uh, how will Denver Transit Partners resolve the issue in, say, the next 90 days, right? That's the length of the extension. Um, is there a software patch that you can install in that time frame? Sure. So I try not to think of it as a software issue so much as a software optimization um, revision. So essentially what Denver Transit Partners is doing is they're going in and they're making some updates, if you will. And the way I like to think of positive train control on your computer, you know, the base system is safe. But sometimes we have security measures like McAfee or other software programs that are an added layer of security. So some of the the difficulties that we've been seeing is it's our security system that's that's been presenting challenges. That's really what PTC is. It's a safe, um, almost backup if there was ever a failure to the base system and the okay. base layer. And so in the 90-day time frame, do you think you can fix what needs to be fixed? I do. I'm confident that what we've 
told the FRA will have delivered in the next 90 days will be delivered. The FRA, the Federal Federal Railway Railway Administration. Administration. Correct. Thank you. Okay. So then you think the 90-day extension will cover you, and by the end of it, what, those people at the crossing guards can pick up and leave? Well, I can't speak to what exactly will happen in the next 90 days, but what I can tell you is that what we've outlined for the FRA, the Federal Railway Administration, the optimizations and revisions that will provide the necessary updates to our system and make it more successful, shorten those those crossing warning activation times, yes, I've, I'm confident that those things will happen. You do not think another extension will be necessary? Yeah, again, that would be a question for the FRA. I, I can't speak to what their solution will be after the next 90 days, but I know that what we've outlined for them, we will absolutely deliver on. And I, I you know, I think it's a a really big achievement that they've heard they've heard us out they've heard our plan and they've said yeah we have, we have confidence that you'll be able to do this you characterize this as an achievement i'm sure there are any number of people saying what the heck happened sure. here why why wasn't this borne out in the testing phase sure and that's a great question i appreciate that um you know I think it's almost comparable to anything innovative and new, right? So in the 1900s, elevators, they stopped needing a person on an elevator. And they just said, these are electric. You don't need somebody with you. Governor Hickenlooper just brought up this example last week. Um, I think there's some similarities. Similarities are people were really nervous to use an elevator without somebody in them. And in the same way with, with positive train control, it's a new thing, but this is a really big deal for Colorado. I think if you love Colorado, you should love the train to the plane. I know there have been difficulties, and we are really sorry for that. But ultimately, public transportation is the way of the future. Nobody wants to sit on I-25 North um, or South, for that matter, or I-70. So yes, to me, this is an achievement, and I know I'm a little bit biased. But. Uh, I see. But growing <laughs> pains, would you say? Then? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I think we have had growing pains, which is nerve, which is normal for a transit system like this. Am I right to say, Nate, that this is the first positive train control system that will be on the RTD line? Yeah, as a matter of fact, I was going to chime in and say this is not only is the first one in RTD, it's the first one in the nation's history. So we're breaking ground here, literally, uh, with this new system, and it's never been done before. So I think that, um, you know, to expect or not to have been a little bit of bumps on the road, uh, getting this up and running was maybe a little over-optimistic, but, uh, you know, what we're doing here in Denver, Colorado is going to have a, a net effect on passenger rail across the country. So something to be proud of, even though it's uh, taking a little bit of patience. As I said, the feds were preparing, at least, for the possibility of shutting the lines down until the fix was in place. You got this 90-day extension. Is there any sense that there could be a shutdown if if the 90-day period is not met? Again, hard to speak to what might happen in the future. Um, But at this stage, I'm confident that Denver Transit Partners and RTD will deliver what they've promised to the FRA. Okay. All of this points to huge questions around the G-Line to Wheat Ridge. Like the A and B lines, it is also commuter rail. It uses these same systems. It is scheduled to open this fall. Is that still possible? What is the timing of the G-Line to Wheat Ridge, Nate? You know, it is still possible. We're still targeting fall of, of this year, and so that gives us up till December 20th, technically. Uh, I think, you know, Denver Transit Partners, along with, with RTD, are working as hard as we can to get everything up and running, but we've agreed to uh, make sure that A and B are, are running uh, well and functioning as they should before that uh, line opens up. So there's still a window for sure that we could get it in fall. Okay. Can you stand firm and say it will be open by, say, December 20th? Uh, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna stand firm on that just because I don't wanna I don't wanna get angry phone calls. But uh, that is our target date, and we we are are confident and we're working towards that. 
Uh, Nadia Denver Transit Partners also involved in the G-Line. Can you add anything more about the, the date there? Yeah, I would agree with Nate that that's our target date, fall of 2016. That's that's what we're shooting for. That's what you're shooting for. Correct. All right. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and I promise I feel better than I sound today. Uh, we are talking about commuter rail throughout Colorado uh, it, on the RTD line, uh, the status of the A, B, and G lines. Those are respectively to the airport, to uh, Wheat Ridge, and to Westminster. So, uh, Nadia, these crossing gate issues are not the only hiccups on the University of Colorado A-Line. During construction, Denver Transit Partners had to demolish and rebuild a bridge because of design flaws. And a recent Denver Post analysis shows there were concerns about the overhead electrical system being vulnerable to lightning. As far back as 2013, uh, a lightning strike earlier this year caused an extensive delay on the A-Line. How uh, are Denver Transit Partners fixing that concern? Sure. Um, Well, ultimately, Denver Transit Partners is of the opinion that the lightning strike was something called a force majeure. So what that means is it's an act of God, if you will. We believe that the overhead catenary system is absolutely safe and absolutely reliable. That's so, the power system for Correct, the, for the, the electrical wires. So fixing isn't really the right term. Issues isn't really the right term either. We're always maintaining the line. We're always making improvements in the same way that you would make improvements to your car. You get the oil change, you put your snow tires on. We're out there. Routine maintenance is happening all the time. As you know, we're doing some in the next few weeks. That's Um, right. Just say a few words about that as it it might affect some travel in off hours. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So an RTD can, can speak to this too, but we're doing some routine maintenance work late at night between the hours of 11.30 p.m. and 4.15 a.m. in the next four to eight weeks. This is the train to the plane. Train to the plane, correct, to DIA and back. So um, if you, you know, if you use that for your regular commute to the airport, just be aware that in the, the late like, the late night hours, there may be some delays. But surely there's lightning proofing for trains. Sure, exactly. There There is lightning proofing. And the, the overhead catenary system that we have is an internationally revered system. This is arguably the best system that exists. Um, the fact that there was a lightning strike and that that had borderline chaotic repercussions is something that can happen to an airplane. It's also something that can happen while you're driving. It's extenuating circumstances that a transit line such like the commuter rail line that we have are privy to when you're transporting a lot of people to and from every, you know, seven minutes, essentially. Remind us what the effects were. Uh, well, the, it was dramatic, um, you know, that we shut, we had a almost a power outage effect, if you will. So the, the train stopped um, on the I-70 bridge and we had to evacuate passengers. And would you say, Nate, that at being a force majeure, it's also a rarity then? Uh, you know, it is a rarity. I think uh, this is one area where RTD and DTP differs. RTD disputes that it is a force majeure. And we're, you know, we're working with our partners on on what that actually uh, would be classified as and, and, and what that looks like. But, uh, you know, hopefully it's a rarity. We know that lightning strikes often in Colorado, uh, you know, especially in the Plains area. So uh, that's something that we are working with them on making sure that, you know, maintenance is, is occurring and, and that the design of it uh, is solid. If RTD doesn't believe it was an act of God, what do you suspect? Well, it could be a design issue. I mean, that's something that we've set aside uh, for the moment. Uh, you know, while we have the rest of A, B, and, and then G to get up uh, to discuss that with them down the road. But, uh, you know, we just, we know that the lighting will occur. It will hit our, system, our light rail systems all the time. And, and it's, uh, you know, we can't have a, a train, obviously, for the entire line 
ending every single time uh, a lightning might strike. So that's just something that we're working out, and uh, we're doing it well with, with PCP, and, and uh, we're, we're pleased with the progress that we're making. Um, and this will obviously be a consideration as the G-Line comes online, uh, if that happens this fall, correct? That's right, yeah. Mm. How would you describe the relationship between RTD and Denver Transit Partners? Has, have, has there been with, withholding of any payment on any other stuff? Has there been uh, payments? Uh, there has been withholding of payments on that. There's about $1.3 million, I think, so far total that have been uh, withheld uh, for performance issues largely, and that's written into the contract. But as far as our relationship goes, you know, we're in this for the long haul together, and we're one big RTD family, and so... There are growing pains. It's the first time this has ever happened as far as a public-private partnership relationship for us. So, you know, there's uh, just adjustments that are going on as we move from construction to operation phase. Well, and I'd like to add, if I may, that this is the point of a P3, right? When we when have you say P3, public-private public partnership. partnership. Exactly. It, let me say that increasingly what we're hearing from state officials is this is how major transit projects will be funded in the state. Right. So this right. is a good example of... The, the private side, Denver Transit Partners, taking on some of the risk that happens when there are challenges. Financially, we are paying for the the changes and the implementation, the revisions, the optimizations. It doesn't come out of taxpayer dollars at all. So ultimately, this is why I believe Colorado and the country are moving towards P3s, because the private side assumes all the risk when there are challenges such that you're seeing on the A-line and mm. P&G. So you see so, Ryan, this... If I could just add... Yeah, go ahead. That, you know, one, one thing that's to keep in perspective is what really a remarkable thing this is. Matter of fact, tomorrow I'm flying to Finland. I've been invited to come out and present at a conference regarding P3s and what, they, what the challenges and what the opportunities are that they bring to funding transportation. So, you know, even though we're right in the middle of things and it's been challenging, you know, the rest of the, the nation and the globe they are looking at us going, wow, this is amazing what you guys are doing. I will say Denver Transit Partners hopes to make money on this deal. That's part of that's part of the of course the uh, agreement, right? The of bargain. course, ultimately, it's an investment. Very briefly, uh, Nate, I'm just w- wondering if RTD is happy with the ridership numbers so far for the A and B lines and that 87 percent on time rate. Yeah, we're really tickled about it. Actually, um, the projected ridership on A was 18,600 per day, and uh, in the month of September, we actually hit 18,811. So we've crossed that for the first time. And then on the B line, it was a uh, much smaller number. 800 was the projected ridership, and we're up right over 1,500. It's almost doubling of that line. And that goes to say the reliability of the train is, is, is great. You know, if you look at actual past 90 days, that number of on-time is, is in the low 90s. So, uh, you know, DTP is doing a great job getting issues corrected and, and running the train well. You heard there Nate Curry, spokesman for RTD, and Nadia Garis with Denver Transit Partners, which constructed and maintains the A, B, and the G lines. The light rail R line through Aurora is scheduled to open this winter. Still to come, a slow-burning fight on the western slope. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. On Colorado's western border, smoke has sparked ire. For generations, folks in Mesa County have gotten rid of weeds, yard waste, and dead farm fields by burning it. Now, clean air advocates are trying to tamp down that tradition because of its effect on health, possibly tourism, and recreation. Kristen Wynn from Citizens for Clean Air is in our studio on Main Street in Grand Junction. Kristen, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. When we talk about open burning, 
This doesn't apply to outdoor grills or backyard fire pits. What, what are people in that area burning that you believe is causing a problem? Well, particularly in the urban area where you have small lots, you have people who will apply for a permit, and currently it is allowed to dispose of garden waste uh, through burning. And I guess I'd look at this as the maturing of our community. Fifty years ago, this was an accepted practice. Fifty years ago, we had many, many fewer people here. Um, we are now at, the county is at 148,000 residents, and the projection is by 2025 to go to 224,000 residents. Hmm. We just can't continue to pollute our air when we have that many people with medical issues and asthma, breathing that burning um, in the air. What evidence do you have to back up those claims about people's health there? Well, um, the um, American Lung Association estimates that we have about 18,000 residents in the Grand Valley who have um, asthma or breathing difficulties. Um, There is a lot of evidence to um, outline that air pollution causes and exacerbates breathing problems. Um, People with um, heart disease have a greater incidence of heart attacks and strokes during high pollution days. What what exactly is being burned? Because, and and let's be clear, you you do need an open burning permit in in Mesa and many other counties, I should say, across Colorado. Um, What are the types of things going up in smoke? Well, What Citizens for Clean Air is trying to tackle is the residential burning that's taking place in people's backyards. What is happening throughout the valley is a lot of agricultural burning. Um, We're not trying to change that. I'd like to see less of it, but um, some of the farmers say that you have to burn certain crops when you are rotating crops. Um, The canal companies will burn the ditches to get rid of weeds that line the canals. So there's a certain amount of burning that will go on no matter what happens in the future. But what we're trying to tackle is the backyard burns where people have options. The city provides a spring cleanup day where you can put that vegetative material on the curb and they pick it up for free. Um, So that's a great way to dispose of that. Our Mesa County landfill accepts vegetative waste, and they turn it into compost, which is another great use for that. Plus, you can always compost your own material in your backyard, put that great organic stuff back onto your lawn and your garden, and get a benefit from it instead of burning it and polluting the air. Vegetative materials, so grass clippings, leaves, what else? Well, I will tell you that burning leaves is already against the law uh, Mm. because it does create so much smoke. So you're not supposed to burn leaves at all. But um, we still have people with vegetative material. and, um, And unfortunately, even though people may have a permit, no one is really checking to see exactly what's being burned in those piles. And I can tell you that it's not always things that are legal. What do you suspect or do you have confirmation of is in there then? Well, it's already illegal to burn trash. And the reason is most of our trash these days is loaded with plastics. And when you burn plastics, you create dioxins. 
And everyone knows dioxins are very poisonous. And what happens is it goes up into the air. It comes down through precipitation into your own property. And if you grow any kind of a garden, you're ingesting those dioxins. And Or perhaps your next-door neighbor or someone down the street is going to end up with those dioxins in their system. We did find through a survey that people were still burning garbage in the middle of the night because they knew they wouldn't get caught. Hmm. Would you call this a a way of life uh, in Mesa County? Well, we asked in this survey we did two years ago, why do you burn? And they burn because it's easier than any of the other alternatives. You know, lighting that match is really easy to do. However, when you have as many people as you do here on the Western Slope now, that becomes less and less acceptable. Do you actually take measurements of this? We would like to have more measurements. Um, Unfortunately, we are down from, at one time, we had six air quality monitors on the Western Slope um, in the Grand Valley, and we're down to two. One is in a canyon uh, over by Palisade, and uh, the other one is in downtown Grand Junction. They are measuring um, ozone and um, particulate matter. And we know that our ozone levels are coming very close to violating the uh, EPA standards, but with only one monitor, we, we really don't have the full picture. We would like to see more monitoring happening. Your group is asking the city council in Grand Junction, the largest city in Mesa County, to do something. Last week, you brought the council a proposed ordinance which would have restricted refuse burning in city limits, where you say it causes the most problems. Uh, One of the opponents who spoke was Jim Bothman, a farmer and former Mesa County commissioner. His family has been burning brush and limbs since 1927 on 20 acres that are now within the city limits. And as I said, he spoke up against the ordinance. We've always had uh, the ability to have fires to get rid of waste, whether it be uh, tree limbs or leaves or that type of thing. Over the years, we've... uh, had fire for that purpose. But Bothman does see the need for some restrictions in a growing city. There's ways that you can handle trash. I think we could all agree that with the proximity of neighbors to a certain density and the safety factors that uh, open burning shouldn't be allowed in the back of a subdivision lot. But clearly not everyone agrees with that. What is some of the pushback you've heard? Well... People feel they have a right to burn, and um, I'm not sure I agree. I feel I have a right to breathe, and I don't have any other options. And I think there's a lot of other options for people who feel they need to burn, and composting is a terrific option. You don't have to drive it anywhere. You can compost right in your backyard. And so it's very low cost. It provides a tremendous benefit uh, to the earth, to your own property, and um, you're not burning. I wonder, um, because you have to have an open burning permit, do you know what the, the policing of that is? Uh, how, how robust the policing is? It's generally on a complaint basis. Um, what happens very often is uh, people will have a burn going and the wind comes up and it increases the smoke or the burn gets out of control. They've had oh, over 50 burns last year that the fire department uh, responded to that were out of control 
uh, burns, some of which have permits and some may not. So unless someone complains about it, um, generally the fire department and the police department assume that you have a permit. Very quickly, is there a community in the state you think is, is doing this well? A community in the state that's doing burning well or not burning well? <laughs> well, I, I, your call, your call. Is there a model you point to in, in just about the last well, 30 seconds? I We have people who move over from the Front Range who are shocked that we allow burning because that's been outlawed in uh, Denver Front Range for years. Um, I had people in Los Angeles who had moved to the Grand Valley and started having asthma problems, and they said to me, you're still allowing burning? Los Angeles outlawed that 50 years ago. So we're a little bit behind the times. This is part of our growing and uh, maturing phase of a community, and uh, we are growing to the point where we cannot afford to pollute our air and affect children and the elderly with uh, bad air quality. And yet I can hear a, some long-term residents saying, if you come from Los Angeles, don't expect to live in, in Los Angeles. We're in a very, very enclosed valley. You know, we are surrounded on three sides by mountains. So when we get an inversion, there's no place for that bad air to go. We really have a terrible problem with winter air inversions and it coincides the end of the winter air inversions coincide with the beginning of the burn season and the beginning of allergy season so you have a lot of factors coming together that create some serious issues if you've ever been over here sometimes in one of our inversions you would be shocked you would be absolutely shocked from my when i was working at the visitor center on i70 there were days i could not see the book cliffs it was it was a serious problem, and, and it is when we get the inversions in particular. Kristen Wynn is with Citizens for Clean Air in Mesa County. The group plans to continue pushing for new regulations to cut down on the longstanding practice of open burning in yards. So tomorrow is Election Day. Yes, you've almost made it. It is too late to mail in your ballot, so you'll need to drop it off at a polling center or at a 24-hour drop box. Your county clerk has information for both. Tomorrow, polls open at 7 a.m. and close at 7 p.m. If you are in line by 7 p.m., you will be allowed to vote. CPR and NPR special coverage of election night begins tomorrow at 6 p.m. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It was once the largest employer and private landowner in Colorado. The Colorado Fuel and Iron Company ran the largest steel mill west of the Mississippi. The steel made at CF&I in Pueblo helped build America. All the places that created the story of the Western United States were built in some way with CF&I. They built all the products that connected us. It was really important in laying the groundwork for the society we live in today. It really sort of forges the cities and the transportation networks and the systems. That mill is Pueblo. Pretty much anybody you stop on the street and you talk to, they know somebody or have somebody in their family who worked in that plant. At one time, one in ten people in the state worked for that place. That is from Forging the West, a new film about CF&I. It premieres in Pueblo Friday. It's also the story of a bloody labor war and of how the company's workers made labor history. 
Denver filmmaker Jim Havey produced and directed it. Jim, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Good to be with you. CF and I got its start because a man wanted to build a railroad running between Denver and Mexico. General William Jackson Palmer needed steel rails for that, as you might imagine. Why did he choose Pueblo for a steel mill back in the 1800s? Well, he worked for the Kansas and Pacific Railroad. He he grew up in Philadelphia, and uh, after a very prestigious high school that he went to, he got a job with the Kansas and Pacific, and uh, and that came just about the time it was coming out to Denver. Arrived in Denver in 1870, and that was the point where he envisioned this north-south railroad that would go from uh, from Denver along the Front Range down to Santa Fe and into Mexico. And Pueblo was the right spot. Pueblo was the right spot because within a short distance of Pueblo, you could find every mineral and resource that you needed to to uh, run a railroad, mostly coal. So there were rich coal seams in southern Colorado, and CF and I ended up owning 60 coal mines to feed this enterprise. And in those days, coal was used for, for home use also. So there were lots of uh, lots of demand for coal and lots of places to sell it. So former state historian Bill Convery says Palmer realized that building a railroad was key to unlocking all that potential wealth of gold, silver, coal. Palmer was a capitalist, but he was at heart a utopian. He believed that industry would create a better society for everyone. He spelled out a vision of an industrial society in Colorado that was managed by Palmer and his close friends for the benefit of all of the workers that was benevolent and concerned about the needs of the employees. But Palmer wasn't able to make that utopian vision a reality. What mm-hmm. happened? Well, he he ran into financial problems for, for, for one thing. He uh, was drained really by the... Uh, resources that he needed to run the steel mill. So when he built the steel mill in 1880, in order to make rails for the railroad, uh, that steel mill drained a lot of his financial resources. He ended up, he didn't have a lot of his own wealth. He ended up having to get partners and the partners said, hey, this this isn't going well. And, uh, and they replaced Palmer. Palmer resigned. Is Palmer the same Palmer as like Palmer Lake near Colorado Springs and the Palmer Divide? I'm, I'm sure that it is. That it is. He founded right. Colorado Springs as well. Okay. So they pushed him out Yes. He was he was the visionary. Who did they replace him with? John Cleveland Osgood was his replacement. And Osgood initially had some altruistic visions of, of taking care of people, mostly so that he could keep unions out. Unions were uh, frowned upon by industrialists in those days. And, and, uh, and so Osgood uh, did start some social betterment programs to help keep him a happy employee as an employee that won't go on strike. Uh, but uh, but that that only only worked so far as well, and, and Osgood himself stretched himself out too thin in the fight. This is a highly capitalized business, the steel business, and so these guys had to go with investors, and investors are watching very closely what's happening with their money. So Osgood was it was uh, eventually forced out. And around 1903, John D. Rockefeller, big name there, becomes majority shareholder of CFNI. That's right, John D. Rockefeller Jr. Uh, becomes the majority shareholder of CFNI, and uh, and he starts to uh, also go down the road of social betterment programs, and and uh, develops uh, programs and uh, things that that will help keep employees happy. Uh, and he's a, but he's an absentee owner, and the people who are running the company are 
very much against unions and really look at the miners in particular as people who are less than human. And you know, the big the big th- thing after a mine accident, and there were many mine accidents. They would ask, "How is the mule?" Not how are the people? Hmm. They could easily replace the the uh, the people. And this led to strikes. This led to unrest, and eventually it led to to real violence, including. Uh, violence wrought on the wives and children of strikers. That's right. And the uh, the Colorado Coalfield Wars uh, from 1913 to 1914 are a, a landmark in national labor history and culminated in the most violent incident, which was the, the Ludlow Massacre, where 11 children and two women were killed in uh, a confrontation between Supposedly Colorado National Guard people, but really mine operated mine detectives and people who were conscripted last minute by the the uh, one of the guard generals. But there there was violence in the camp, and, and the camp was burned to the ground. You say that it's an important chapter in labor history. What are its reverberations? Do you think the reverberations from Ludlow were 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 huge? The 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 morning after John D. Rockefeller wasn't it wasn't really paying all that much attention to what was going on in, in, the, in the strike. And the morning after, there were people in New York City outside his office in black armbands, hundreds of people marching, marching down, down the street. This was, you know, killing women and children in, in a, uh, an insurrection like this was, uh, was something that, that got headlines coast to coast. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about the new film Forging the West, it's about CF&I, the Colorado Fuel and Iron Company, which ran the largest steel mill west of the Mississippi. That steel made in Pueblo, to a large extent, really helped build America. So give us an idea of the scale of CF&I in its heyday. How many people were working for the company? The, at the turn of the century, uh, there were one in 10 Coloradans, 10% of Colorado's workforce worked for the, for the company. That's a huge. You know, it was the largest employer by far in, in Colorado. Yeah. Now the, the the real heyday for CF&I though, because Rockefeller did not really make a whole lot of money. He ran the company from 1903 until 1944. Didn't make a lot of money on on the enterprise, hmm. and it wasn't until the post war years that CF&I really boomed, and a, a company called the Allen Company took over, and they built it into. Uh, Companies that stretched coast to coast, they they had many subsidiaries. They had twenty five thousand employees at the, at the peak in in the country, and twelve thousand plus of those were in Pueblo. Mm, but it had fingers beyond Pueblo. Oh yes, that boom did not last, though, did it? No, it did not last, and uh, by. 1974, there were nationally, I mean, there was there, there were 500,000 people working in 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 the steel industry. By uh, 1992, that had dropped to 200,000, and part of that was because of a lot of that was because of foreign competition, especially from Japan at that at that time. And there were more strikes later and, in the history, right? And there and there were more strikes and. Uh, including a very long strike more recently in 1997 that uh, lasted seven years. Yes, and Pueblo steelworker Mike Rodriguez remembers that strike. And my thoughts were at that time in 1997, I'd had three years in the mill. I'll be going back to work three weeks or whatever. Well, it it lasted seven years before we went under contract. And during that time, I was locked out from the mill for five years. 
So did the mill shut down during that time? No, the mill did not shut down. They had replacement workers. The mill has been continually operating since uh, 1881 when the first rails moved off that that uh, the line. Uh, so it did not shut down. They had replacement workers. There were strikers at the entrance to the, of the plant for all that time. Mm. And uh, and it was just a, a, a nasty strike. For all that time, for those years? Yes. That would have just been such a presence on of, on the psyche of Puebloans. Yeah, it, it was, and it was a it was a hard fought battle. In the end, the strikers won. The strikers got the largest back pay settlement in uh, in American history in the steel industry, and uh, and so they did eventually have a big payday. But uh, it took a long time. All right, Ben Lutzi is the general manager of the Pueblo plant today, which is owned by Efraz, a Russian company, and it employs around uh, eight hundred fifty people. We operate an electric arc furnace, and we will take it from solid cold scrap to 3,000-degree liquid steel in about 34 minutes. We can fit about 130 automobiles in there. You, I think, saw this for yourself, this <laughs> operation. What's it like? It is you know, the, the, everybody uses the word awesome. Uh, to, it, it, when, when things aren't net, there's very few things that are awesome. This is <laughs> awesome. And it really is like walking into Dante's Inferno. It is just the most uh, large-scale sparks, heat, fire. Uh, everything is very safe. They, they, they make uh, – they have a great safety program at Everest, and 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 everything everything is safe. But there is the scale of everything is so large, uh, and the fire and the sparks when they put all this scrap metal, as Ben mentioned, the equivalent of 130 cars into this furnace, it is it, there there it, it's very loud and sparks and fire and smoke. It's uh, it's it's really something to see. And what products? Uh, is Efra's feeding these days? They are still making rails, as they have through the whole history of the company. They are the largest. Uh, the CFNI plant itself is, or the Everaz plant now, is the largest uh, rail producer in North America. And internationally, the company produce, is the largest uh, rail producer in the world. So they still do that. They also produce uh, wire uh, they have a wire mill that produces rebar for the construction industry, oh. uh, fine wire for suspension bridges and things like that. And then they also produce casing pipe for oil and grass, gas drilling. You've made a lot of films about Colorado's history, Jim Avey. Uh, why in Forging the West uh, did you feel that CF&I fit in to the larger story of Colorado? We have enjoyed telling the story of Colorado for a number of years, and uh, and this is a huge part of the story. It's southern Colorado. A lot of people don't know much about southern Colorado, but it also brought so much um, immigration and um, and products that built the West of Colorado and built the state. Thanks for being with us. Jim Thank Havey you. directed Forging the West. It's a new documentary about CF&I. It premieres in Pueblo Friday and then in Denver November 15th. You can see a trailer and photos at cprnews.org. Just ahead, a drug you have to justify not taking. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. This election's been stressful enough that it might drive you to drink. 
And the holidays are just around the corner when the pressure or even the desire to have one too many can be great. So let's listen back to my conversation with author Annie Grace of Morrison. She'd written in her new book that alcohol is the one drug you have to justify not taking. Annie, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. So before coming to Colorado, you lived in New York, had a successful career in marketing, and drinking was expected. You expected it from yourself in in many ways, for relaxation, for business, for pleasure. What led you to question your own drinking? Yeah, it was absolutely expected, I think, in my first job in an ad agency, we had brainstorming meetings, which involved, you know, everybody going into the boardroom midday and, you know, a bunch of bottles of alcohol, wine, beer. Drinking at work. Drinking at work. All right. And that was, that was really in the advertising and marketing agencies. I mean, that was very typical. And I felt huge amount of pressure to keep up. I kept getting promotions. I was the youngest VP in this company. And I had even a system to do it. I'd had a, you know, a glass of wine, a glass of water, and sort of alternate back and forth to ensure that I could kind of keep up for the night. And it even was at the point where if I felt like I was drinking too much, I'd sneak back to my room. I'd throw up the last glass of wine so I could continue on with my colleagues. It is fair to say that you weren't drinking because you wanted to, but you felt you had to in that environment? Absolutely. But it quickly turned into an I wanted to thing. I mean, alcohol is addictive and you become dependent on it. And so I became, you know, emotionally dependent on it. I started to believe it really helped networking. You know, I started to forget the the glass of water as I grew a tolerance to alcohol. So it sort of crept up on me. You mentioned uh, the addictive qualities of alcohol. You cite a lot of research to demonstrate that that is true. Uh, I think that people... Uh, talk in terms of alcoholics and someone who's almost predisposed biologically to become addicted to alcohol. But what you're saying is that because of its addictive nature, anyone is susceptible. Yeah. And I think it's almost a danger in a way that we talk about the fact that an alcoholic is the person. I mean, alcoholics often say that they were born that way when, you know, neurological research shows that any organism over time can become addicted to alcohol, similar to any other addictive substance. And in a way, it allows us to forget the addictive qualities of alcohol because we can, you know, just kind of close our eyes to it. I did it for 10 years. I mean, I had a friend who joined AA and I sat down and talked to her about it because we had been drinking together. And I said, wow, you know, is my drinking that bad? And she goes, no, no, Annie, I'm different. You know, I have an allergy to alcohol. I'm, I'm not like you. And I honestly took that as almost permission to continue my drinking, where I think I would have honestly looked at it quite a long time ago. You know, equally, if you are starting to question it, there's so much fear around that term. At least for me, there was, and most of my readers say, wow, I was so terrified to think I could be an alcoholic because it's really been classified as this lifelong incurable disease. And in some ways, obviously, addiction is a very neurological disease, but it's a developed disease. What are some tips you have for that awkward social situation? It doesn't always have to be awkward, but it often is, of refusing a drink. Yeah, it it can absolutely be awkward. And I think because when you stop drinking or you decide to cut back and all your friends are continuing to drink, you sort of raise the bar. And if there's any insecurity about their relationship with alcohol, they feel judged almost. And I think it's like if you're on a diet and you know, someone else is eating a donut, they can feel a little bit awkward about it. And saying no in general is awkward. I mean, it's not great to say no to anything. So trying to flip the conversation so you can say yes and kind of be really proactive about it. Okay. What does that sound like? So would you like a drink? Yes, I'd love a Diet Coke. 
yes, I'm so thirsty. I'd love some water and then maybe something else later, you know, just kind of diverting it. And I think we overthink it sometimes. We think the conversation has to be big and it absolutely can be if you let it be big and you let people start to pressure you for reasons. Uh, you could say something like, I can't, I'm driving. Yes, absolutely. Or I, I think people admire that notion of a designated driver. Or even I have a late night or I have some work to finish up. I've got an early morning coming. I'm on an alcohol-free cleanse. Yes, health reasons are good. Although you have to be a little careful because, you know, people can feel judged again. Why not just say, hey, I'm not drinking. I'm done with it or, you know. I've tried that, and I, I came into my non-drinking days very much. I'm going to just say I'm not drinking. And it was amazing how kind of cool the atmosphere got. I think there's a lot of pressure on the host to make sure everybody's having a good time, and there's some fear around the idea that if people aren't drinking, they're not going to be having a good time. And I think people feel like, well, that you're being boring. You know, I, I get told that. How does the marketing of alcohol influence people's perception of drinking? I think it really digs in. There's not a lot inherent that you can sell in alcohol. I mean, it doesn't do anything really amazing for you. And so what we market is not necessarily what it does. We market relationships and connection and sex and, you know, all of these things that are very deep, visceral human needs, but they're not actually going to be found in a bottle. But we're very susceptible to that kind of messaging because it's the things that we all crave at the core of us. I think to your drinking and how it was a means of escape sometimes, a means of belonging. Um, I was in the supermarket the other day and there was a brand of wine called Mommy's Time Out. And it's this idea, I suppose, of selling wine as an escape, as, as peace. And I think, you know, it does. It slows down your brain functions. It slows down your thoughts. And so you can find escape, but you're really going below your thoughts instead of necessarily, you know, mindfulness rises you above them. And I think there's all sorts of brands like that. Mommy's at home drinking. I got a card <laughs> that said it's not drinking alone if the kids are home, you know, and, and that's something you wouldn't do for any other substance on the planet. What is your relationship to drinking today? I just don't want to drink anymore. And I think that's a really beautiful thing. So I don't feel like I have any rules around it. Um, but I haven't had any desire to have a drink once I kind of really changed how I viewed alcohol and got my head on straight about it. So, so that was a years-long process, as you describe in this book. It was a process. And with the book, I really hope to shorten that process for other people. But it was really, I mean, at the crux of it, when I decided alcohol wasn't doing me any favors, I consciously wanted to drink less. I had this really strong, unconscious desire to continue drinking because I unconsciously believed it was absolutely vital to my life. And becoming aware of the factors that put that pressure on you is a huge part of this. Annie, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Annie Grace's book is called The Naked Mind, Control Alcohol. She lives in Morrison, and we spoke at around this time last year. We're going to send you off today with a modern-day sea shanty. That is a maritime tune for us landlubbers. Buntport Theater for All Ages, that's an offshoot of Denver's Buntport Theater Company, launched a new serialized show last month. It's called Siren Song, A Pirate's Odyssey, and it's inspired by the Greek, Greek epic poem Homer's Odyssey. Perhaps you read it in high school. In their version, there are pirates, castaways, and an iguana in a parrot costume. The series runs monthly at Buntports on every second Saturday, and each episode is based on a song suggested by the audience. One tune, though, remains consistent throughout the series. 
Denver band Chimney Choir wrote the theme, and here's a taste. Hee-ho! I wanna go home, I'm far away at sea, with yah-ha-ha and yo-ho-ho, a siren sang to me, a pirate I see. Come gather round, you pirates, all you devils young and old. Fill your cups and listen up, his poor Neville's tale is told. One day up in the heavens, when Terry said to Devin, The Denver band Chimney Choir with the theme for Siren Song, A Pirate's Odyssey. It's a new serialized, family-friendly show. The next episode is Saturday afternoon at Buntport Theater in Denver. I'm Ryan Warner, CPR News.